Amen. Thank you very much, Brother Blessington. I want to encourage you guys to keep it, your Bibles open there in Matthew chapter 2 as we go through the text together. Um, you know, when we think of the Christmas story, and we all like seeing baby, little baby Jesus in the manger, right? We're like, oh, so cute, wrapped in swaddling clothes, Right? And we forget that the Christmas story is filled with difficulty, tragedy. And the thought would automatically be, well, William, let's just not talk about that stuff. Let's just talk about that God gave his son to the world, uh, you know, eat some good food, you know, have some, open some gifts, and we'll just call it a day. But if we did that, we wouldn't be, we wouldn't be faithful to the Christmas story. So much of it is filled with hard, difficult moments and moments that we have to embrace because the people in the Christmas story had to embrace it and they just couldn't run away from it. And so neither can we. You see, all of the events of Matthew chapter 2, they happen in the matter of days. The Magi, they, the Magi travel from Babylon to Jerusalem to speak to Herod because they're seeking the newborn king of the Jews. They want to come to worship Jesus. This is troubling news to Herod, the earthly king who is governing in the region of Judea. He summons the religious leaders. He asks them to search the scriptures and to inform him of where this child king would be born. And it's in Bethlehem, the same place where King David was born. Herod then secretly, once again, summons the Magi to come. And he tells them to go and search in Bethlehem for Jesus. And that once they find him, to come back to him, to give him word of where Jesus is staying in Bethlehem, because he too says that he has the intention of coming and worshiping Jesus. As the Magi make the eight-kilometer trip from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, they see the same star in the sky that had led them to Jerusalem. And now the star is showing them the approximate location of where Jesus can be found in Bethlehem. They find Jesus and they come and they bow down before him, worshiping him, and they give him their treasures. That same night, the Magi are warned in a dream to not go back to Herod in Jerusalem. They obey, and they take a different route back home to Babylon. Also that same night, while Joseph is sleeping, an angel of the Lord appears to him, commanding him to get up, to wake Mary, and to take Jesus with them and to escape into Egypt. God knows Herod's true intentions. He wants to locate Jesus to have him killed. So Joseph obeys, quickly getting up, waking Mary, and they escape with little baby Jesus and go to Egypt. You guys remember from last week? Remember what I constantly said? Obedience is hard. Obedience is hard. 
And you might be asking, well, William, why are we recapping this? Why are we saying this all over again? Well, because it's important that we remember that these events happen in a very small amount of time. Now, the Magi are on their way back into Babylon, and Joseph, Mary, and Jesus are on their way to Egypt. And this is where we pick up our text, starting in verse 16. And the first thing we see is a desperate king. Verse 16, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he was furious. The wise men, the magi, we use those words interchangeably. It's the same group of people. These were expert astronomers who knew to interpret the stars in the sky. Herod was expecting them to return back to him to give them the exact location of Jesus. Yet they're nowhere to be found. It's a short eight-kilometer travel from Bethlehem to Jerusalem. It would have only taken about two to three hours. Even if the Magi spent the night in Bethlehem and decided to go back to Herod the next day, there would have been more than enough time for them, ha for them having to have been done so already, and they have not. Herod knows something is wrong. He's been deceived by the Magi. The Magi. My wife tells me I always pronounce that wrong. That G and J. It just gets me all the time. But you can laugh at me. I'm okay with that. Thanks. <laughs> Take everything I say so literal. I love you, Catherine. The Magi have tricked Herod, so he thinks. They came to him inquiring about where this king would have been born, and he got them the information that he was in Bethlehem. And now they haven't kept up their part of the bargain. They're not coming. They're not going to disclose where Jesus is staying. What Herod doesn't know is that God is sovereignly orchestrating the events of history to protect his son Jesus. It's God's direction to the Magi that leads them to avoid Herod. And this also gives time for Joseph, Mary, and Jesus to get out of Bethlehem and to make their way to Egypt. This is all God's doing, his hand. And so by the time that Herod is made aware of this, it's too late. Yet, he doesn't know this. He has no clue what God is doing. So Herod is furious. And he takes extreme action. This is no surprise to the people under his control. And this puts in perspective, if you just want to look back a little bit into verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, what did, Herod the Her what did, what did Herod hear in verse 3? Well, what was said in verse 2, that the Magi have come to worship the king of the Jews who had been born. The text tells us that he was troubled. But not only he was troubled, all of the people of Jerusalem were troubled. Why? Well, because they knew that Herod was a terrible man. They knew that he was cruel. They knew that the birth of a new king would pose a problem, not only for Herod, but for all of the people in that region. They were going to suffer because Herod was a ruthless king. Here's just some quick history. King Herod the Great, he killed 
three of his eldest sons because he believed that they were plotting to take his throne. He killed his favorite wife and had many of his extended family members executed because he was obsessed with defending his throne. Herod was a paranoid man. He had spies throughout his province who kept tabs on everyone that he suspected of. Listen to this. He even left orders with his commanders that upon his death, that all Jews of nobility were to be slaughtered and that at least one person of every family, of every household should be killed so that they might too mourn his death. Crazy. Of course, when he died, his commanders didn't do such a ridiculous thing. So it's no surprise to us that we see Herod take this horrific action in verse 16, which says, And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem in on, and in all of that region who were two years old or under, according to the times that he had ascertained from the wise men. He commands his Roman guard to go to Bethlehem and the surrounding area just to be, in ca- just to be safe and to murder all of the male boys who were two years old and younger. How did Herod know to come to this conclusion about which children to kill? Well, the text tells us that he had ascertained. He was able to accurately determine through the information that the Magi had given him the approximate age of the child. If you remember, the Magi told him when they had initially saw the star rise up in Bethlehem, which indicated that a Jewish king had been born. The religious leaders had told him of the location of where this child king was born. It was Bethlehem. And given that 99.9% of monarchies in the ancient world were ruled by male kings, he deduced that it was a boy. And so Herod has good enough rough estimates to be able to eliminate all possible threats. It's sad that we are talking about this and that it's about children that Herod looked to children as being his enemies. Again, we see his cruel heart. All he cares about is protecting his earthly throne. This is horrific. We don't know exactly, but it's likely that around 20 male children are killed. Bethlehem is a small town with a population of around 1,000 people, and that surrounding areas had very small villages. But nonetheless, this massacre is no less significant just because it might seem like a small number. Matthew tells us that God foresaw this event happening. Verses 17 and 18. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentations. Rachel weeping For her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. This is the first time that we see Matthew actually tell us who he's quoting, the prophet Jeremiah. And he's quoting specifically Jeremiah 31.15. Jeremiah was the son of a priest who lived in in the southern part of Judea. God calls him when he's around 20 years old. 
and he speaks to the people of, Ju- of Judea for the next 40 years. Yet, <laughs> the people never listened to him. Jeremiah prophesied while, Ju- while Judah was under attack by the Assyrians, the Egyptians, and later, and finally, the Babylonians, who take the people into captivity. See, the majority of the book of Jeremiah, he prophesies God's judgment upon his people because they choose to disregard his commands. And the people are unwilling to repent and to turn back to God. Out of all of the prophets in the, New Te- in the Old Testament, Jeremiah is by far the most emotional one. This is evident through his prophecies where he is repeatedly pleading with the people to turn back to God. And yet, they always seem to ignore him. There are glimpses in the book of Jeremiah, even from the text that Matthew quotes in Jeremiah 31. We see that God says that he envisions a day in the future when his people will repent and turn back to him. Yet, the verse that Matthew quotes, Isaiah, Jeremiah 31, 15, it's written while the people of Judah are being taken by the Babylonians into captivity. That's why he quotes it. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. What is God trying to say with this? Well, Ramah was a town that was just 10 kilometers outside of Jerusalem. And it was the place where people believed that Rachel's tomb was. If you don't know, Rachel was one of two of Jacob's wives. She was the mother of Joseph and of Benjamin, two of the 12 tribes of Israel. She was viewed as the mother of the Jews. Now God's prophecy through Jeremiah, he, now God prophesizes through Jeremiah that Rachel can be heard weeping from her tomb for the people of Judah because they are being taken out of the city of Ramah and they are being taken into Babylon as captives. Uh, Rachel is symbolically crying. She is lamenting that her descendants, her children, her offspring, those who have come from her, from her tribes, are now being taken from their land. She refuses to be comforted. Her people now are no more in the land that they belong. She's unconsolable as she witnesses from her grave what is happening to her people. Do you guys get the picture? Do you guys understand that as Jeremiah is prophesying that this woman who has died, who birthed these children from who these two tribes came, who have settled in this land, that now as a result of attack and their unwillingness to repent and turn to God are now being taken from their land and they're being taken far away into a distant place as slaves. And so Rachel is weeping and crying as she witnesses this from her grave. Yet the prophecy of Jeremiah 31, it doesn't end there. Because God loves his people. And he promises to restore them and to make a new covenant with them. 
We can read this a little later on in that same chapter, Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 33. Look at what it says. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of, of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That God is saying this after the people now have left and are in Babylon. That though the people are now suffering tragedy, being taken into captivity, though they are weeping and they are mourning, God promises to bring a new day when he will make a new covenant with them, when they will turn back to him and follow him. So now Matthew quotes Jeremiah 31, 15. Because God knew that a new day of lamenting would come. When there would be a wicked king who would kill male children. So just as Rachel wept over the people of Judah being taken into captivity, now Rachel is once again crying from her tomb, weeping and wailing because there are fathers and mothers who have lost their baby boys. These parents are also unconsolable. More children of Judah are lost. These babies are no more. Yet, there is hope. Though these families are suffering, in the midst of their human tragedy, they can continue to believe that God is in control. Because somehow, God brings good out of our suffering. Through their tears of sorrow, God will bring salvation. And this is Matthew's point. These families have lost their sons. But the day is coming when Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is going to give his life to save. God is bringing about a new covenant where he will write his law, his truth, upon the hearts of every single person who repents and believes in his son, Jesus Christ. That though there are tears and though these families are suffering and though they are lost their child, there is another child who is alive, who will grow up to become a man and who will give his life to bring salvation to all. Look, I don't know always how God uses suffering for our, good, for our good. I don't. But I do know that suffering is a part of our lives. Can anyone here say the opposite? No. Jesus prepares us when he's told his disciples that they would face difficulties and hardships in John 16, 33. As he's preparing to face the cross, he says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have Lots of money. Praise God. And yet that's what we hear so often preached in churches. In this world, you'll have lots of houses. 
a big fat bonus this Christmas. Bring it on, Lord, bring it on. In this world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, take courage, be strong. I have overcome the world. So we shouldn't expect it to be easy. We're going to face situations in our lives that are going to make us weep and cry and to turn to God. And so we need to stand on scriptures like Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, verse 28 that says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. God uses everything in our lives for our good. Did you hear that? God uses everything in our lives for our good, even the ungood. He uses for good. I don't know how, but I do know that he does. All of the suffering and hardship that we go through can certainly not separate us from the love of God. <laughs> Paul continues on in Romans 8, telling us this in verses 35 to 39. Look with me. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Christ. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angel, nor rulers, nor things present or things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is nothing in this world and no amount of suffering or pain that you might go through that can separate you from God's love. But you're going to have to go through it anyway. How many of you remember at the end of Jesus' life as he's preparing to face the cross and he's in the garden of the Gethsemane and he is praying, sweating blood, anxious agony upon him. And what does he say? Father, if it's possible, pass this cup from me. God, if there's another way, give me plan B. Or C or D or E or F. But not my will be done, but yours. You see, Jesus knows there's no other way. And listen, so often for us in our lives, we're not going to go around our problems. We're going to have to go through them. And we better just get used to the fact that we need to plant ourselves on Jesus Christ, who is our firm foundation. So that when the winds come, and when they blow, and they beat up against our lives, and things come to us that we're not expecting, we don't topple over. But we stand firm in knowing that Jesus Christ is the cornerstone on which we have built our house. These families are suffering. And we will suffer, but there will be a day when that child king will grow up to be a man who will give his life 
for them and for us. A king returns home. Verses 19 to 21. In verse 19, Matthew tells us that Herod eventually dies. Woohoo! He's gone. Verse 19. But when Herod died, we don't know how much time has lapsed between verses 18 and 19. So when you look at that in your Bible, if you look closely, we don't know between those two verses how much time has passed. Um, there's no indication of how long Joseph, Mary, and Jesus stayed in Egypt. Some think a few months, others think a few years. But what we do know is that Herod is now dead and the threat upon Jesus' life is removed. It's safe for Joseph to bring his family back home. And so God does exactly what he said he would do. That when Herod would die, that God would reveal that to Joseph. So again, while Joseph is sleeping in a dream, an angel of the Lord appears to him and says to him that it's safe for him to return. Verses 19b and 20. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are now dead. This is now the third time that the angel of the Lord appears to Joseph. And he repeats exactly, almost word for word, verse 13, that had told him to leave Israel, to go to Egypt. And the only difference now is the reverse is said for him now to come back into the land of Israel. Joseph needs to get up quickly. Take the child Jesus and his mother Mary to the land. Why? Because those who sought the life of the child are now dead. God is speaking about Herod. Herod is the one who had made, who had given the order to kill all the male babies. But now Herod is gone, and so is the threat. Verse 21, we see Joseph's continual obedience to God. And he arose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. I just want you to see now that now they make the reverse journey from Egypt back to the land of Israel, traveling another 240 kilometers over more than a week's journey. Jesus must have loved the road trips. Jesus leads Joseph and his family to Egypt. Did I say Jesus? God leads Joseph and his family to Egypt. God sustains them while they're in Egypt, and God brings them back home. We see God's hand of protection upon his son Jesus throughout this whole time. Amen? Let me just say this about Joseph's obedience. God doesn't just desire our immediate obedience. He desires our continual obedience. We must respond immediately to the truth of the word of God. Yet it's not just about the moment of response. It's about sustaining our response to obey daily. Amen? Joseph had to stay in Egypt and wait. He was obeying every day, knowing that the day would come, that he would once again have to obey, leaving the land of Egypt to come back to the land of Israel. He had a continual posture of being ready to obey. How about you and me? I prayed that we would have this same posture of obedience. Always ready to obey no matter where we are. Listen. Because the place where God has us doesn't matter. Our obedience where God has us is what matters. 
You see, what you're going through right now is what you're going through right now. And it's what you're going through right now where you need to bring your obedience to God. So often, you and I, we're looking for what's next, for what God is going to do, instead of just being focused on obeying God where He has us. Don't worry about where God is taking you. Commit to be faithful and obedient where God has you, and He'll take care of the rest of getting you where He wants you. But don't expect Him to get you where, you, where He, don't expect to get where He wants you to be if you're not obeying where you are right now. He's not going to get you there. We have this tendency as human beings always thinking about where we want to be instead of where we are. You know the daydreamer? Oh, if I won that $68 million that other guy won from Toronto the other day, what would my life be like? You guys ever find yourselves daydreaming while you're driving? Yeah. Oh, what I would do. And yet, Every day, God gives us opportunities to obey Him where He has us. <laughs> and all we need to be worried about is being obedient to Him, and He'll get us where He wants us. You know that God's final destination for your life is better than yours? Because He sees tomorrow, and you and I don't. We plan, we prepare. Scripture says that there are paths that seem right to men, but that their ends are destruction. The only one that knows those ends are God. And yet we put so much hope and trust in the things that we want, in our agendas, planning and preparing. And yet God can see where those things that we're deciding are taking us instead of us just being faithful to what God asks us to do. You guys remember what Jesus said? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all of these other things will be added unto you. If we keep God first and his word first, he's going to get us where we need to get to in the end, amen? We are those proverbial children in the car as God is driving our lives, taking us to where we want to. But yet, as kids in the car, what are we always asking from the back seat? Where are we going? Are we there yet? Where are we going? Are we there yet? How much longer? I have to go pee. But we're, we're going to get there. I'm so hungry. Parents, you guys have no clue what I'm talking about, right? Okay, it's just my kids. I know. Please, okay. God, help my kids. First thing they ask when they get in the car, where are we going? Just trust us. But what if I'm going to be bored? <laughs> Too bad. Finally, an obscure king. Verses 22 and 23. Joseph is now on his way back to Israel. And he has, he has set on returning to Jesus' birthplace to settle, Bethlehem, which is in the southern part of Israel. God was specific about the time for them to return, but he wasn't detailed about the exact place where they were to go. So sometimes in life, it's just like that. God lets you go where you want. I don't really think that God cares whether you go to McDonald's or Burger King. They're both bad choices. <laughs> right? Don't even bother praying about where you should go. If you're hungry, just go and eat. So God gives him direction about where to go. And Joseph now is looking and deciding about where he thinks he should settle. And to him, it makes sense to come to the place where Jesus was born and to settle there. Bethlehem is the place of the Messianic prophecy. Bethlehem is the place where King David was born. Bethlehem is the place where the king of the Jews should be. 
And this is what Joseph is thinking. Yet as Joseph enters Israel and he begins to approach Bethlehem, he quickly discovers that it is unsafe for him to go there. Look at verse 22. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. Herod's son, Ar Archelaus, is ruling in the place of his father over the region of Judea. And Joseph fears that this son is just like his father Herod. And let me tell you that historians tell us that he was. The historian Josephus confirms and tells us that when Archelaus became king over this area, that in, to celebrate, he slaughtered 3,000 Jews. So given that Bethlehem is extremely close to Jerusalem, it continues to be an unsafe and dangerous place for Joseph and his family. So Joseph is being prudent. It's not, a good it's not a good idea to settle in Bethlehem. And then God also divinely confirms this through another dream, leading Joseph to the district of Galilee in the northern part of Israel. So now listen. Joseph, Mary, and Jesus now have to travel another 130 kilometers to the district of Galilee in the north. And verse 23 tells us that they settle with their family in the place called Nazareth. Look at 23. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth. So just want to put this in a little bit of perspective. Their complete journey would have taken about 370 kilometers, and it would have taken between three to four weeks of travel time. I think Jesus, I'm going to say this again, he must have really loved road trips. Luke fills in this kind of open space here that Matthew doesn't, and he tells us that actually Matthew and Mary are from Nazareth. Look at Luke chapter 2, 1 to 7. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with the child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for him in the inn. So Caesar Augustus decrees a census, causing Joseph to have to leave his hometown of Nazareth to go to Bethlehem, to his birthplace to be registered because he is a descendant of David. At this time, Joseph is already engaged to Mary. And she is pregnant through the divine conception, through the Holy Spirit. And so Joseph has to bring Mary with him to Bethlehem to be registered, and it's there that Jesus is born. So Joseph and Mary are actually from the town of Nazareth, and this would, this would be them actually coming back home to the place where they were dwelling and where they grew up. You guys with me? It's really important that we understand that. And now Joseph makes this their permanent dwelling place. And Matthew ends verse 23 saying this, so that what was written by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Matthew refers to the Old Testament here in a very different way from how he refers to the other Old Testament texts that he provides. Here he refers to the prophets in the plural, and he doesn't directly quote any specific Old Testament prophecy. 
Guess why? Because there is none. But he says there is. So what is Matthew doing here? There is no mention of Nazareth or of the Nazarene, the one born from Nazareth in the Old Testament. There isn't one quote that is given by any prophet in all of the Old Testament. So though Matthew calls Nazareth a city, it's really in reality more of a village. Archaeological evidence shows that Nazareth's population in the first century only had about 480 people. It was an obscure place that the majority of the people didn't even know that existed. It was considered insignificant. And this is Matthew's point, telling us about where Jesus grew, grew up, that he was truly an obscure king. Matthew is instead referring to an Old Testament theme of prophecy, that there were many prophets in the Old Testament that when they spoke of the one that would come, they spoke that he would come and that he would be despised, that he would not be accepted by his own people, that he would come, have a humble beginning, and come from an unexpected place. His arrival would serve to be more of people not expecting him to come. It would be unrecognizable. He wouldn't fit into the expectations of the people to the point that when he came, people didn't take him serious. And this is what Matthew is trying to convey. Here's just one example in the Old Testament. Isaiah 53, 1-3. You guys can stand. We're going to have our wonderful children come and set up. Look at what Isaiah 1, look at what Isaiah 53, 1 to 3 says. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised. And rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their face, faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. You see, Nazareth, Nazareth was a despised place. Nothing good came from there. Jesus would not be known as Jesus of Bethlehem, the place of the promise of where the king of the Jews was born. But instead, Jesus would be known as Jesus of Nazareth, the place that no one knows about. We see this clearly in the Gospel of John, chapter 1. Jesus begins his ministry now at the age of 30. And he calls Philip to follow him. And Philip excitingly leaves everything and follows Jesus. And then Philip goes to Nathanael who is either his brother or a very close friend, and he says in John chapter 1, verses 45 and 46, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can any good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. You see, Philip is overjoyed that he was able to find the expected king of the Jews. 
And yet when he mentioned to Nathaniel that this king had come from Nazareth, he is shocked. Why? Because nothing good comes from Nazareth. Think of it this way. It's much like today. You know, a lot is expected of people who go to top universities. If you go to Harvard or Yale or MIT, you're expected to do really well. Yes or no? Because these schools have what? A reputation, right? That they are the ones training the best leaders who are going to excel the most in our society. No one is expecting an inventor or a CEO to come from a community college or someone who didn't even finish high school. And it's much in the same way of how they view Jesus. That Jesus is now growing up in Nazareth in an obscure place. From the last verse in Matthew chapter 2 to the first verse. Guys, stay with me. I know the kids are cute. I know I'm not. But let's just finish well. From the, from the last verse of Matthew chapter 2 to the first verse of Matthew chapter 3, there's a, there's a time gap of more than 25 years of Jesus' life where he is living with his parents in Nazareth, for which we have no indication whatsoever of what happened. The Magi and the shepherds who received news that the king of the Jews had come are now in the distant past. 25 years have passed. No one remembers that God sent his son Jesus, the king, and that now he has been growing up in this obscure place, waiting for his minier street to start out of the gaze of people. So just listen to this last sentence. You see, Jesus doesn't just have a humble beginning. He also has a humble upbringing. And he comes from a humble place that no one is expecting Jesus to come from because Jesus is a humble king. And that's the takeaway for you my friend, my brother, my sister who are here today. Jesus' beginning was tough. He faced challenges and adversity. Jesus grows up in a place that no one is expecting. Jesus is growing up out of the sight of all gazes because Jesus is a humble king who was not just born in a manger but grew up in an obscure place that no one was waiting for. Because Jesus would ultimately come to be despised and to be rejected by his own people. In the meantime, you and I have taken advantage of the fact that Jesus has come, our humble king. And that through his coming, he has saved us. Amen? Let us pray. God, we thank you so much for your work today. You know, you can't plan, God, how these things come together. As I was going to preach today about such a devastating thing that happened to children that we would be having our children singing. But somehow, God, you plan all those things together. You weave that together, God, that today, that as we look at these children leading us in worship, we know that Jesus Christ has come, that God has made a new covenant with us, that though Jesus is a humble king, he was a humble king who came to give his life for us. Father God, in this world, we will face difficulty and tribulations. We will face hardships. Lord Jesus, help us be faithful and to be obedient until the day we die. And we pray that as we celebrate the coming of Jesus, that we know that Jesus' coming was humble. We pray that our response to you would also be one of humility. We receive our worship today.
from the mouths of these beautiful children, we pray. And all of God's people say, Amen. And we are going to make sure to also what? Worship. God bless you.